Let us pray. So, Father, our hearts do cry, Alleluia to Jesus, our King and our Lord. And we rest in his promise that he is with us now and forever. So now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We well, may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. I'm so glad that you are here. And again, good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. We're so glad that you've joined us. I invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them and turn to our Gospel reading from the 18th chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel. Finishing our series on the Beatitudes last Sunday, now picking up with Matthew 18 in the lectionary, and um, the challenging teachings of Jesus continue. Looking today at a parable of Jesus, which is familiar to many of us and from which we all need to learn. As we look at this parable, it is important that we not um, disconnect it from its setting and its larger context of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 18. So keep that in mind. Today's gospel reading opens with Peter asking a question of Jesus. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, backing up just a little bit in Matthew 18, um, a few verses before today's gospel reading, we find the familiar teaching of Jesus regarding how to handle things when a brother or sister sins against us. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, we read these words. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now at first glance, the statement of Jesus in verse 17, tell it to the church and let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, and what Jesus says in our gospel reading today in verse 22, forgive your brother 77 or 70 times 7, could seem to be contradictory. But they are not. Hear that, they are not. Now, just a quick note, there's debate among scholars whether the interpretation of the number Jesus gives there is 77 or 70 times 7, um, which would be 490, Really, whether it's 77 or 70 times 7 is inconsequential because the point here is that forgiveness must be extended repeatedly. God's people are to extend and give forgiveness. This statement is hyperbole to make the point that God's people should forgive and not hold grudges. But now back to the seeming contradiction that is not. The forgiveness we extend to others, like God's love for us, must be without limits. Hear that. The forgiveness we extend to others, like God's love for us, must be without limits. At the same time, discipline for ongoing, habitual, unrepentant sin is a necessary and scriptural truth. It is not a loving and gracious thing. This gets skewed in our culture and even in church culture sometimes. Well, to engage in church discipline is, is somehow harsh or lacking in grace. 
It is not a loving or gracious thing to allow a brother or sister to continue in a path of sin that is destroying them both here and for all of eternity and wreaking havoc perhaps in their family, in the church, and being disreputed in the name of the Lord in the broader community. That's not love. That is not biblical grace. However, even with the strongest forms of discipline talked about in Scripture, such as those which Jesus speaks of here in verse 17 of Matthew 18, the intention and the purpose is always, hear this, always redemptive and not simply punitive. Godly reproof and godly love always belong together. Do you hear that? Godly reproof and godly love go hand in hand. This is consistent throughout all of God's word, all the way back through the Old Testament law. In Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 18, this principle is evident as we read, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul had to deal with this issue and exhorts the Corinthian church. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not those in, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. But then in 2 Corinthians, following up on this issue, um, St. Paul has to remind the Corinthian church who always seem to have a penchant to go to extremes one way or the other that they had gone too far and weren't restoring the brother properly where he writes these words. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. The purpose in all of this is the way that the wayward Christian brother or sister would be brought to true repentance, amendment of life, and restored fullness of fellowship to the body through loving, godly discipline that is redemptive in its heart and purpose. This has been necessary for the Christian community in every age. The local church would cease to exist apart from acknowledging the lordship of Christ in both word and deed, and exercising godly biblical discipline. W.D. Davies and Dale Allison in their commentary on this passage says this, the spirit of forgiveness cannot mean blindness and indifference to sin within the church. In scripture, godly discipline and grace-filled mercy and forgiveness always go hand in hand. They are not separate, nor are they in any way exclusive of each other. And even in the midst, hear this, even in the midst of necessary discipline and the consequences of sin, we as brothers and sisters must always, always forgive. And that forgiveness must be without limits. 
while it's not specifically forgiveness in the context of the Christian community, I think the power of God's work in our lives and the capacity that he gives us to forgive is demonstrated in the Amish school shooting that took place in 2006 outside of Quarryville, Pennsylvania. Do some of you remember that? Where, yes, where um, a, a um, milk tank tanker truck driver went into the school, put out the teacher, all of the boys kept 10 girls in the school, assaulted and then shot all of them in the head. Five of those children died. I mean, I actually have Chapin colleagues who worked with some of those families as that happened in the region. Um, and then the driver also ended his own life. The reaction of the Amish community, who so many identify simply with rejecting modern conveniences, was shocking to many. Yes, yeah, they didn't have a phone. That is correct. They forgave the man who killed their five children. They went on to embrace the man's widow. They responded not with rancor or anger or hatred. They responded with love. As Aaron Byler, age 66, one member of the Amish community said, we have to forgive. Jesus forgave us our sins. How can we expect forgiveness if we cannot give it? The Amish community didn't just forgive. That same day, the very day of the shootings, a large contingent from the Amish community went to Mr. Roberts, the shooter's home, to comfort his wife and family. They bought, brought baskets of food and other gifts. They stuffed his wife's mailbox with notes expressing their support and forgiveness. And they even attended Robert's funeral. That, brothers and sisters, is only possible through the transforming power of God at work in his people. After a short answer to Peter's question, Jesus launches into a parable to drive his point home. We need to remember everything he is talking about, specifically in this context, is between brothers and sisters in the faith, fellow believers. However, the mercy and grace of God through us also extends, even as we saw with the Amish community, to unbelievers. St. Paul had a great deal to say about this in comparing and contrasting these two things and how they were to be approached, but that all is beyond the scope of my sermon today. But the first main point of the parable that Jesus teaches here in Matthew 18 that is our gospel reading today is this. We have received abundant mercy. You and I have received abundant mercy. Jesus specifically uses an example in this parable between a king and his indebted servant, and he specifically chooses a Gentile context for this. He's not speaking of a Jewish person. The Jews, um, their, their idea of a monarchy was different than the Gentile world around them. But Jesus uses a Gentile context because at that time in Gentile culture, none of the just and godly restraints for punishment that were in the law were there. In the law, if we understand the Old Testament law, the punishment was always correlated with the severity of the crime or the transgression. But in Gentile culture, the consequences were often extreme and disproportionate to the offense. So here we find a servant in this parable with extreme indebtedness, 
a point that's easy to miss for us. Again, it, at some point hyperbole, because the servant owes 10,000 talents. And we think, oh, well, that's nice, 10,000 talents. But understand this. In that day, in Jesus' day, 10,000 talents was more than all of the money in circulation in the entire land of Egypt at the time. Far beyond the income of any king and thousands and thousands of times greater than the annual income of the average worker in Palestine. It was a debt nobody from a simple day laborer to the most powerful king could ever possibly hope to repay. The spiritual implication here is quite evident. The servant cries out to the king and master for mercy. But instead of coming up with a repayment plan, which is impossible anyway, out of pity, the master releases the servant and forgives the debt. The concept of the word pity here must not be missed because what we see here is the heart of God the Father expressed and demonstrated through his Son, Jesus Christ. And what we see is a God who is filled with loving kindness and compassion. And the pivot point of this parable is God's mercy to all of those who would cry out to him for his mercy. Those who cry out for mercy because they have a debt that can never be satisfied. Brothers and sisters, this is the story of every single one of us who knows Christ. This is Christianity 101. And we must never, hear this, we must never, ever lose sight of this. It is God's mercy in Christ pure mercy and loving kindness that has made my forgiveness and your forgiveness possible. In Romans chapter 5, verse 15, we read, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And then a few verses later, St. Paul continues, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The Anglican hymn writer Augustus Toplady captured it well in the second verse of Rock of Ages. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no languor know? These for sin cannot atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Brothers and sisters, we have received in Christ incredibly abundant mercy. And for those of us who have received mercy, we must also extend abundant mercy. The master, again, out of pure mercy, forgave the servant and released him from all of his indebtedness. God in Christ, out of his great mercy, has forgiven you and me, washed away through the blood of Christ all of our indebtedness, and made us new creations through faith in Christ and his sacrifice. 
even as St. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God has forgiven us out of pure mercy and gracious godly generosity. And by his power and work in us, hear that, by his power and work in us, we can and must do nothing less. In recent weeks, as we've been studying the Beatitudes, I've spoken a great deal about citizenship in Christ's heavenly kingdom and how we as kingdom-ready people must live and order our lives by God's power at work in us. And if our heart's desire is to fully submit to Christ's kingdom reign in our lives, then his goodness and mercy must be imitated and actively demonstrated and sought in and through our lives to others. Especially to those who have offended us or Christ's church. Remember the beatitude we studied a few weeks ago in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. To be clear, all of this gets distorted sometimes in our culture and in the world around us. You know, people will say, well, to forgive is to forget. Extending godly forgiveness and mercy is not pretending nothing happened and not addressing or confronting the issues. Matthew 18, earlier on, is very clear about that as we looked at the comparison. But rather, it is fully acknowledging the offense that this really did happen. And still, by God's grace and power in our lives, working to the point of forgiveness in our hearts, even if the other person never repents. And while forgiveness, hear this, while forgiveness is boundless in mercy, that does not mean that we don't set godly, healthy boundaries. Now, to be clear, setting boundaries is not a license to bash someone, to publicly bash their name, as the late Pastor Eugene Peterson wrote, muckraking is not gospel work. Witch hunting is not gospel work. Shaming the outcast is not gospel work. Forgiving sin is gospel work. So what do we mean by healthy boundaries? Well, I'll just give a couple examples. If someone has, you've been engaged with financially, a brother or sister in Christ has defrauded you, a healthy boundary is that you don't get into any type of financial arrangement or agreement with them again. If you are in an abusive, say in a physically abusive relationship, forgiving does not mean that you go back into that situation and get yourself beat up or harmed physically again. If someone has been incredibly manipulative and used you as a means to an end for their own gain in a way that is abusive, you can set a boundary and forgive, but that doesn't mean that you step back into that unhealthy and ungodly situation and in a sense perpetuate the sin of the other person. St. Paul did this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He writes to Timothy, Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At, fir at my first defense, no one came to me to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. 
if we are submitted to Christ our King, forgiveness is not an option. But it is incredibly difficult at times. Let's be honest. And frankly, it is absolutely impossible in the flesh and everything in our flesh and everything in the world around us would say, lash out at that person. Give them what they've got coming. Let them have it full bore. But God, but God enables us. God through his transforming power equips us and calls us to forgive. Just like those Amish families in Quarryville, Pennsylvania forgave the person who murdered their very daughters. We have received abundant mercy. We, brothers and sisters in Christ, must extend abundant mercy. Finally, harboring unforgiveness comes with an immense cost. At the end of the parable in Matthew 18:33, Jesus says, "And you should not, and should not you have mercy? Excuse me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you?" James 2.13 reminds us, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me read that again. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. By God's grace and power as people under the authority of our king, forgiveness must flow from the heart. It's a work of the heart. It at times is a hard ongoing work. But it flows from the wellspring of a genuine understanding of what you and I ourselves have received from God and what Christ has done on our behalf. Remembering that even the most horrible of circumstances, God for his children can use for our well-being. As the late Dallas Willard wrote, for those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you. We must extend forgiveness. Even as we pray every Sunday as we prepare for Eucharist and we pray many other times during the week in the daily offices or in our private devotional times, what do we pray? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is a hard word from the Lord, from our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a word that it's impossible to obey without his transforming power and his grace at work in our lives. And yet, because God calls us to do this, God commands us to do this, he makes it possible through his work in us to forgive those who have offended here in this body, in the larger body of Christ, and even in the broader world around us. And God calls us in very clear and specific ways to do that of obedience to him as citizens of his kingdom under Christ our Lord who has forgiven us everything, forgiven us all of our sins. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your incredible grace and loving kindness to us. 
debtors who owed a debt that we could never possibly pay. And Father, thank you that in your incredible grace and love and mercy for us, you didn't come up and set up some type of a repayment plan, but through Christ and his suffering and his shed blood and the power of his resurrection, you erased that debt in our lives as we place our trust in him. So Lord, fill our hearts with thanksgiving for your incredible loving kindness and mercy to us. Lord, thank you for the hard teachings of Scripture. Thank you that godly mercy and godly discipline go hand in hand because you want us to see those who have stumbled and fallen fully restored to fellowship with you and the body of Christ. But Lord, even now I ask that you would search each of our hearts. Lord, if we are at aught with a brother or sister in this body and we need to extend forgiveness or in the broader body of Christ, Lord, speak to us now. Lord, show us the error of our ways out of loving kindness. And Lord, give us your grace and power this day in this moment to make that right, not to kick the can down the road or to put it off, but Lord, to take those steps you call us to take in the hard work of forgiveness in our hearts and extended to those who have offended. Father, thank you that this is possible for your people in Christ and fill our hearts with rejoicing because of what you have done on our behalf. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.